It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, I don't know about you, but I still have Rush in Rio on the brain. As do I. I've been listening to it a lot since we did the podcast. And I'm still thinking about watching the video. It really is amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely a a stunning piece of uh, documentation of a great night. And we were talking about this and we thought, hey, we need to have somebody on that was at that show. And today we have somebody on who was at that show. I'm very excited. Not just at that show, (laughs) involved in the show. Very involved in the show. You could find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, you could find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Rate and review us. Give us a good review. That'd be nice. Yeah, it would be nice. Thanks. The base intro and outro, that is Lex. And Jer, I hope you have an email to get us started before we get into our fabulous conversation. I do. I've had this email for like um, a month or more. It's a little heavy, so it's been hard to read out loud. I've practiced it a couple of times. It's from Dave. He says, I hope this note finds you off on a good foot as we begin 2022. My name is Dave from St. Louis, Missouri, and I've been a huge Rush fan since 1977 when my friend introduced me to what was then the brand new live album, All the World's a Stage. I've loved every phase they went through over the next few decades, marveling at both the ever-evolving musicianship as well as the lyrics remaining relevant to where I was or am in life. Not only Neil's words, but also the way he lived his life with meaning and purpose has been a huge inspiration to me. This has never been more true than the last year, as like the professor, I've had to deal with tragedy and loss. Although we were long separated and estranged, my former wife Kelly died one month shy of her 50th birthday in October 2020. While I had processed losing her some time ago, I still had what I call retro grief that I had to work through. More importantly, though, I was concerned about my two kids and the need to support them through the loss of their mother. My son, David, in particular, took her death very hard. He began leaning heavily on drugs and alcohol to ease the pain and spiraled out of control. On January 10th, 2021, exactly one year after the world learned of Neil's death, David died at the age of 28. Although ruled as an accidental overdose on various chemicals, like Neil related in Ghost Rider regarding his wife, Jackie, I believe the true cause was a broken heart. Needless to say, this absolutely crushed me. David wasn't just my son, but he was also one of my best friends. We shared many of the same interests, including a love of Rush. When he was 10 years old, we went on a road trip to Ames, Iowa and Minneapolis, Minnesota to see the band on back-to-back nights on the Vapor Trails tour. By a stroke of luck, we ended up in the front row in Minneapolis, where he was given a used and broken drumstick from Neil by someone in the crew. It truly was one of the greatest nights of my life. In addition to more Rush shows, we went to many other concerts over the years, sharing in our mutual love of music as well as for each other. But now he's gone. You have no idea the gaping chasm that had been left in my soul. I lost my parents years ago, and while I was certainly saddened to say goodbye to them, in the natural order of things, you expect that your folks will leave before you. But this? Losing a child? It's a crime against nature and absolutely the worst experience a human being can go through. Thankfully, I knew of someone who went through something similar, who had chronicled his experience in detail, and came through the other side to find hope and thrive at life once again. Neil Peart. He had spoken to me in so many ways over the years, but now was when his example was truly put to the test. While I leaned on the entire Rush catalog, it was Vapor Trails and Snakes and Arrows that really served as my soundtrack over the last year. 
horizon to horizon, memory written on the wind. What is the meaning of this? Life is a power that remains. One day I feel I'm on top of the world, and the next it's falling in on me. I can get back on. I can get back on. Put on your bravest face. We could be down and gone, but we hold on. I could go on and on. Not only his lyrics, though, but quotes from his other works were unbelievably inspirational, not the least of which was, Be Your Own Hero. I took this to heart when trying to figure out how to deal with the loss and grief. While I didn't have the resources to go on a two-year, 50,000-mile motorcycle ride like he did, I did have an artistic side that I tapped into, and an explosion of creativity came pouring out through making collages and sculptures. I can't even begin to tell you how cathartic and therapeutic this has been. And so now here I am, a year later. While there is a pain inside me that will remain for the rest of my life, I feel grateful to still be surrounded by the love and support of family and friends and inspired by one of the greatest human beings ever. I share this story with you in the Rush community not to gain sympathy, but to give hope. Listen to my music and hear what it can do. There's something here as strong as life. I know that it will reach you. No truer words have ever been uttered. Thanks for indulging my story and thanks for the podcast, guys. May 2022 be better for us all. Take care. And that's from Dave in St. Louis. Thanks so much, Dave, for the email. First of all, so sorry for your losses. And thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I went back and forth with him in email a couple of times, and I extended our condolences to him. Well, that's very nice of you. So as I mentioned, Jer, we've got a terrific guest today on the Rush FanCast. He is one of the most influential and successful music video and live entertainment directors in entertainment, president and CEO, and founder of the award-winning TV and digital production company City Drive Studios. He's been nominated for over 100 international awards, including a Grammy nomination, Diamond Award, Telly Finalist, and a Juno Award for Music DVD of the Year in 2004 for directing and producing Rush in Rio. Daniel Catullo, welcome to the Rush FanCast. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you joining us. Daniel, we'd like to start out by asking our guests their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush? And how did you become a fan? Wow. Okay. Well, this is really going to show how old I am. <laughs> My first memory of Rush was probably moving pictures. Was it 81? I mean, I was a drummer growing up. And so obviously, if you're a drummer, it's a, it's a requirement that you listen to Rush. And so, you know, the first tour I ever saw of Rush, the first show I ever saw was Presto. I saw the Presto tour, Brendan Byrne Arena. I think Mr. Big opened up. That was in 1990, I believe. And then I saw the role of Bowden store right after that. So as I was in high school, I graduated high school in 1990. And so um, my brother-in-law at the time was dating my sister and she brought me to my first Rush show. And before that, the only other concert I ever saw, I saw Duran Duran and I saw Brian Adams. And obviously Rush was a completely different experience. I think we were at that show. Steve, can you confirm that we were at that Presto show? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're from the New York area, correct, Daniel? Yeah, I, I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's where we're from. That's where we're from. Live in Orange County, California right now. I'm actually in Laguna Beach right now. Uh, but it actually, up until the pandemic, I had a home in New Jersey. I was bi-coastal. And, and we got rid of that right in the middle of the pandemic when things were going a little crazy. But uh, my family still lives there. And I, I go, I'm, I, actually, I'm back next week. But, uh, you know, Jersey's where my heart is. So when you were a kid, obviously a drummer, music fan, 
how did you transition your life into music production and concerts and things like that? I kind of stumbled into it. You know, I, I, sometimes it, it's really funny, you know, when I, I, I'm friends with a lot of my peers and other directors and producers. And, you know, sometimes I feel like the odd man out because when we have discussions, you know, they talk about when they were kids, they grew up and they were, you know, they were aspiring filmmakers and had 16 millimeter, eight millimeter cameras. Not me. When I grew up, I always wanted to be a doctor. That's what I was going to be. But when I went to college, um, I went to West Virginia University and I went there to play football. So going in to play Division One football, uh, it's not a smart thing to be a pre-med major, you know, because playing football is like a full-time job. And so I just went for business. But, you know, right around my senior year in high school, I started working at the Meadowlands as a stage end. And I started, that's when I really first started opening my eyes to like the production world and everything. And I started getting obsessed with it. And so even while I was at college at West Virginia, I would drive home seven hours to work a big concert. So I, I would play hooky. You know, if it was on the weekend, I would get back in time. But even if it wasn't on a weekend, if there was a big show, I'd, I'd get put on it and I would drive seven hours. I would take a day off from school, work the show and come back. And that's where I kind of got the bug, uh, seeing big shows and getting to work with the road crews. And, you know, straight out of, uh, out of college, around 93, I actually had the opportunity to go on a couple of big concert tours. I mean, I started out as a lighting tech and I worked my way up to eventually stage manager and then tour manager. So I spent a good part of the 90s on the road as a crew member on different tours, everybody from live to Guns N' Roses to U2 to uh, even Frank Sinatra tour. Uh, 96. And then uh, it was while I was on the road, believe it or not. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was just kind of moseying around and getting to see the world. Uh, I actually met uh, a woman backstage at a show. Her husband was a film producer and uh, Michael Gross. And he, um, he produced Ghostbusters and Twins and Beethoven. He was Ivan Reitman's partner. And I got to know Glennis really well. And so in the late 90s, when I wanted to stop touring and I wanted to move to Los Angeles, I reached out to Glennis and that's when I came out and she let me stay in her guest house. And we eventually went into business together where we bought a, we bought a concert venue in Ventura, California. And I, next thing you know, um, I'm a promoter and, you know, then, you know, my hopes of ever becoming a doctor kind of went away and I got sucked in the industry, but I started out as, you know, a road guy. And then I went, uh, I became a promoter. And then when we got, when we, we actually were forced to sell the theater. I don't know if you guys remember this, but the late nineties was when the whole, what is now, as we know, live nation was kind of happening mm -hmm. where it was SFX and clear channel and they were rolling up all the small promoters. So it was becoming more and more difficult to promote to, you know, when you have a 1500 capacity theater, unless you were part of this big group, you couldn't get the ax anymore. And so we kind of got muscled out of that. And I remember, you know, telling Glennis, okay, I corrupted you in music. Take me in the film now, jokingly. And we actually started a film company. And this is how it segue into music. We started a film company in early 2000 called Coming Home Productions. And we originally were going to do low budget features. And during that time, a friend of mine, Paul Geary, who was the drummer of, of uh, Extreme, he went into management. And he reached out to me. He's like, oh, hey, you know, uh, you know, what are you doing? You're in L.A. now. I'm in L.A. with my new band. I'm managing a band called Godsmack. You know, we're at the Avalon tonight. Actually, then back then it was called the Palace. Why don't you come check the show out? And I went to the show and I was like, this is unbelievable, you know, because, you know, even at the time it was Tommy Stewart was the drummer, but they were such like a percussion oriented rock band. And I, uh, I fell in love with them. And, 
you know, and then Paul told me, hey, we have a big homecoming show coming up at the Worcester Centrum. It's going to be our first arena show. And because I, I told him what I was doing, he's like, hell, you should do music DVDs. You should, you should film that. So I went back to Glennis and Michael and I'm like, we need to be filming concerts. We should do music DVDs. And back then in 2000, a music, D, like music DVDs were non-existent. Uh, it was still VHS. It was kind of in between formats, but I had a hunch that DVDs were going to be the next thing. So I, we went and I, uh, we cut a deal with Universal. I told Universal, I went in to see Doug Morris and, I, and Avery Lippman and I said, I want to film Godsmack. And they're like, no, D- DVDs don't sell. We don't have the budget. I said, well, we'll put the money up, but we want to own it. And they're like, if you'll put the money up, you can own it. So that started this career where all of a sudden, you know, coming home ended up really blowing up. And Rush was actually the, the DVD that really put us on the map. I mean, Rush and Rio, I mean, for a long time, I think we were the biggest selling music DVD in history uh, until Led Zepp and Box Set came out. But we just destroyed it on that. But you know, we were self-funded and we were promoting, you know, and, and, and distributing our own product uh, for years until I got rid of that company in 2009. But, you know, it, it all happened like a blink of an eye. It wasn't really intentional. It wasn't planned. Uh, we just started working with bands and, you know, that first DVD with Godsmack, you know, debuted at number three in Billboard and went to number one. And next thing you know, 200 bands later, you know, it just, it went crazy. And, and I, I started directing I wasn't a director. The problem with me was I was a backseat driver. I was a, I was a very hands-on producer and I would hire these directors and I would, I would hover over them and I'd be yelling behind their, because I was a drummer. So I was always like with the, the rhythm, I always kind of knew where things were going. So I used to yell over their shoulders, look at camera 13, look at camera nine. <laughs> and it got to the point where directors were like, couldn't deal with me anymore. So I started directing myself. <laughs> so, and then it was funny. The very first show I directed was in 2001 at a James of all things. And that, that, that got nominated for a Grammy. So I just started directing from that point. Except it was funny, you, you brought it up at the beginning, and we haven't really talked about this a lot. Not many people know, but on Rush, I technically wasn't even the director on that. Uh, so I was the supervising producer and the lead producer, and I funded it. But Larry Jordan was actually the guy that called the camera shots. At the time, I had the sole credit because of DGA restrictions with Gary, with Larry. Um, but not many people know that, but you know, I was the guy that dealt with absolutely everything on this gig from the Z. I mean, it was probably the, the most memories I have of any project I've ever done. A hands down was the rush, uh, you know, project just because of the way it all came together, you know, where the band was at in their career, this thing came together very last minute. We were actually supposed to film it in Uncasville, Connecticut at Mohegan Sun. It got changed days prior. And then we only had a week to make it happen in Brazil. And it would, the whole thing was just insane. Uh, and even working in Brazil was tough. Well, so first of all, why don't you tell us how did you connect with Rush and how did you get the gig and how excited were you as a Rush fan to be working with them? So um, Larry Jordan, uh, we were working together on other projects and Larry worked with the band previously. And you know, Larry's like, you know, God, would you be interested in working with Rush? And I'm like, of course, <laughs> of course I would. And, you know, but, you know, I, I wasn't even aware when he first told me about it, that the band was back. I thought they were still on hiatus, um, you know, because the band took the extended break because of Neil. And he's like, you know, Ray Daniels and Peggy Draconi are friends of mine. Would you like to talk to them? And so I immediately got on the phone and I don't know if you've ever interviewed Peggy, but Peggy's probably crazier than I am. And we hit it off immediately. And I remember talking to him about shooting Uncasville. And uh, it was weird because initially I had reservations about that location. It was a smaller arena, but I think they wanted to play it safe. 
we, we actually didn't know when this is all before the tour started, before paper trail started. So they weren't even sure how they were going to be received at the time because of the break. They weren't, they didn't know if people were going to come. Believe it or not, out of everything I've ever done, the hardest project that, that, it, that it was for me to raise money was Rush. Because, you know, remember, this was still in the infancy of the DVD world. Rush did okay with previous stuff on VHS, but every which way we ran numbers, it was going to be close to seven figures initially. Now, the ultimate project in Rio cost about a million and a half dollars. But when we were even in the early stages, when we were just going to do it in Connecticut, it was still going to go close, you know, cost close to a million dollars. And it was a tough sell because you really didn't have any historical data to show that it would work. I mean, back then, no one really knew what the music DVD demo was. So one thing that Rush and Rio did, it kind of set the tone for the music DVD generation. Um, it was the audiophiles. It, was the, it wasn't a new kids on the block fan. It was a 45-year-old guy with a Coors Light and a $5,000 surround sound system in Ames, Iowa. And uh, people found that out real quick. And even Rush was surprised. I mean, none of us were prepared for how well it would do. Um, seriously, we were. I did it initially as a fan. I wanted to be part of documenting their career and uh in work with them i mean it was a, an honor and we were hoping to recoup we had no idea that it was going to be received the way it did and you know explode i mean it, it sat on top of the charts and billboard forever it seemed i mean it just kept going i mean even even when it dropped down we were like still top three um it was it was a freight train and it just kept going and going and going and uh it was my first and only diamond award i've ever gotten diamond award is for 10 times platinum yeah and, you know, from that point, then obviously it started the succession of then then Rush became known for all their DVDs. It was like, bam, bam, bam. Now we're now they're just going to be in the DVD business. Their DVDs have outsold their albums. So, you know, and just a testament to the band's musicianship and what the fans of the band really want to see. So it was interesting. So, you know, I met Peggy and Ray and we did a deal and we, we set forth to do Mohegan Sun. So what happened with that Mohegan Sun show? It's a crazy story. So about a week before the show. I get a call from Peggy. We have a problem. I said, what's the problem? Like, I needed to talk to the chief. I said, the chief of what? They go, the chief of the tribe. <laughs> and I said, what, what's going on? Well, in order for us to film there, they want the band to thank the casino. And they basically want us to advertise the casino on camera. And obviously, you guys know Rush better than anybody. Yeah. Not an easy ask. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, the band said they're not going to do it. So they want me to do my magic. So I, I ended up speaking to the chief and he was not budging. And at the time, remember, my company was called Coming Home. Uh, he actually told me to, to change my, uh, my name to Stay Home because he's like, we're not going to film here. <laughs> so we were like a week out. We had all these payer plays. I had deposits on trucks and we canceled the shoot. Wow. And the only remaining shows were these three shows in South America. Right. Um, and you have issues down there, you know, with infrastructure and even trying to find the right equipment. I mean, we couldn't get an HD truck. We looked at doing it in Sao Paulo. The only truck that was good enough was booked on a soccer game or something. Then we in Puerto Alegre, it was too off the beaten path. So we're like, Rio, let's do it. Americana Stadium, biggest stadium in the world. But again, now this was nerve wracking because they, they, they didn't know how well it was going to sell. So Rio is like Hawaii, where you put a concert on, you put a, a concert up for sale. You're lucky to sell 10% of the house in pre-sales. 99% of people that go to shows buy tickets the day of because so many artists cancel or don't show up and there's problems with refunds and there's problems with the dollar going up and down. So it's a walk-up crowd. 
Now we're used to seeing walk-up crowds at nightclubs in America, but stadiums. And so, you know, going into it, I think they only had like 8,000 tickets sold. And this wow. is like, this is the biggest stadium in the world. So if I have anything less than 30 or 40,000, I have a real problem filming this thing because it's going to look empty. And, you know, so there was a lot, of, everybody was nervous on how well it was, you know, going to do, whether the people were going to show up. The band was ne- never been to Brazil. So they didn't know if the fans were even, if they, were, they had fans there. Neil Warnock, you know, had confidence. So he told them that they show up, if they come, the fans will show up. And they did. So the day of the show, <laughs> there were only 8,000 tickets sold. I don't know about the day of. I know the, I know the week before when we were planning it, which that in itself was crazy because, right. you know, we were mostly an American crew and Canadians getting work visas for Brazil with no notice. I mean, usually it's 30 days out. So I had, a, I had to make phone calls and someone said, go, hook, you know, go meet this guy, Bernardo Veloso. He was the Brazilian consulate. And so I, I rushed up to Beverly Hills and I sat down and I'm like, I need 44 work visas right now. And, you know, he's like, can't do it, my friend. There's no time. I'm like, you don't understand. We need this. And just even, you know, you couldn't do a carne. It's hard to get equipment into the country, you know, with no notice. I mean, basically we had to rely on what's there. We had to pull strings to get the work visas, which was scary to begin with. And then the craziest thing of this whole story is, you know, in, in Brazil, you don't pay for things unless you see it. And, you know, no one's going to take a check from a U.S. company. And wires take two days to post. And I also wasn't going to send a wire. So we had to pay for most things in cash. So we had to make arrangements to get almost a half a million dollars in cash and bring it with us to Brazil. So still to this day, I get flagged when I come through customs because I was stopped by TSA leaving the country with in my bag, I had about 250,000, but there's a record of me with $250,000 cash going through LAX to get on a plane to go to South America. How do you think that looked? Yeah, really? I had binders and I'm like, we're going to shoot a DVD. They didn't even know what DVD was. I'm going to shoot a DVD with Rush. This is a concert event. I can't, but I need cash to pay people. They're not going to accept checks from us. I was detained for like four hours. And we had to fill all those reports out. And it was funny, probably like for four or five years after that, every time I came back in the US, they would pull me aside. Wow. Because of the record of that. But we had to bring cash. And so I had to bring bodyguards with us and then make arrangements when we got there for security. And then all the cash was given to me and we brought it in my hotel room. And we stayed at the Sheridan in Copacabana Beach. And, you know, it, it can get a little weird down there. So they, they had to change my room every day. They kept moving me around. And I had secure armed security there because I had all this cash you know, until I, I mean, was, I never felt so, so happy to, to pay everybody to get rid of the cash because I didn't want to have it on me anymore because, you know, the last thing you want to do is have that kind of cash in Rio and people know about it. People talk, you know, it was a whole thing trying to find the gear. I mean, we, it was a mishmash. I know like if you read the liner notes, Neil wrote the whole story of being in Brazil, yeah. but he, he mentioned a few times or, you know, the band has th- spoken about before you know, the audio problems we had. I mean, we have problems with everything there, you know, we, there just wasn't suitable equipment in Brazil for what we're used to. And, you know, it really sucks because to this day, out of all the high profile shows I've done, it's the only one that wasn't in HD. Remember back in 2002 was at the beginning of HD, everything was still DigiData. So the show wasn't captured in HD, which kind of stinks. And, you know, recording wise, you know, we, we booked this beautiful, recording tr- mobile recording truck and then this like box truck with, with a board in the back shows up we're like what the hell is this I mean, every <laughs> everything they advertise it magically doesn't exist when you need it and then you're like oh my god and then you have to 
kind of make do with it. So, so it was like a, it was like a U-Haul truck with a board in the back. Yeah. And then the TV truck we got was not the one we wanted and it didn't work. And then our tape room, they didn't have enough ISO deck. So, uh, I had to rely on JW Griffith, my technical director. Like we were raiding like the equivalent of radio shack down there and we got a dumpster and we were actually building a makeshift uh, video control room in a dumpster. Wow. Solder and stuff all the way down to the wire. And the crazy thing to make matters worse, the band was late coming into town. Their trucks got held up in the mountains in Puerto Alegre. And then we had pouring rain. And all of a sudden, of all the shows I've ever done, I've done now 350 live concert specials. Of all the ones that I needed a proper sound check and a camera blocking, it was Rush. And we didn't have it. I mean, they were still rolling instruments on stage. We were hanging lights as the crowd was in the stadium. And we didn't have any chance at all to check anything. We didn't know if anything would work. It was just one of those things, screw it. And we just went with it. And thankfully, everything worked. But I mean, it was nuts. I've never had a never had an experience like that. The whole thing was nuts. So the band showed up, what, around noon that day? Might have been a little after it. Because I remember I was having a freaking heart attack. I was at lunch and they weren't there. So I don't know if I ate lunch maybe a little earlier, but they weren't there as of lunch. I mean, we were trying to find out where everybody was. Uh, I remember the police were blocking streets off to try to get the trucks in, uh, but everybody was late. I've never been in a situation. So I, I got to the venue around seven in the morning and I never, I was so happy because as my van was pulling up, there was at least 30,000 people in line already. So the line went all around wow. the stadium, and all the way down the road. So I'm like, praise Jesus, we have a crowd. And it was raining. <laughs> and so we had a crowd. Uh, and, but you know, it was really funny. Like you should see the looks on some of their faces when we, when they opened doors to let people come in the stadium, the stage wasn't set up. <laughs> it was just like, there was really nothing on it. And I'm like, Oh my God, if the band doesn't make it, are we going to get out of here alive? Like, this is really right. weird. Like, I mean, this, these people are going to riot. And so I, we just sat there, you know, we, our cameras were in, uh, the cameras were in the venue and our jibs are set up. They were working on wiring our makeshift truck backstage, but you know, we didn't have a band. And uh, finally they showed up right, right around lunch or right after lunch. But, you know, we should have been, I mean, a show like this, we should have done the loading the night before, but, you know, it's okay as long as we go in at six or seven. It, it's unheard of to start setting up around one or two. Uh, that's insane. But, you know, Howard and the, the, the crew of Rush, you know, they're lifers and they're the consummate pros. And it was, it was eerily calm considering what we had in front of us, you know, and and the band was eerily calm. I mean, you know, they're just, you know, Neil was very Zen. He's always Zen. You know, Alex just makes a joke of everything. I think if anything, maybe Getty was doing most uptight, but you know, every time I'd see Alex, he'd just joke about it. I mean, it was just, you know, I was panicking because, you know, at that point we had a million and a half dollars on the line. If it, if it went down, we lost all the money. Yeah. You know, Steve and I had just talked about the audio, you know, the CD of Russian Rio last week. And I think it sounds fantastic as a live album i think it's one of the truest representations of the band live but it doesn't sound like it might have not been recorded that way or at least there was some suspicion that it wouldn't sound like that we had a we had a, a few different versions i think that one holds the record for me on how many days we spent mixing jimbo originally mixed in la and they went to a couple different studios in la and then eventually we ended up up at metalworks gill's place up in canada and uh it was kind of awkward because seemed like Alex and Jimbo were like going forever. <laughs> and like my investor, like you need to get up there and find out what's going on. I'm like, Oh boy. And so I had to fly to Toronto 
And, you know, as the, now I'm up there as like the executive producer and CEO of the company, like, Hey guys, we got to pull the plug on this and we got to, we got to put it out. And I'll never forget just walking in a room and it was, you know, super dark and there was pot smoke everywhere. And I'm like, uh, and they're just in this Zen mode, like, you know, listening to it. And up until that point, I wasn't really happy with all of the mixes, but when I heard it kind of in that environment, you know, there, there's a uniqueness to it at the end of it. Cause people have talked to me about it a lot. Like, you know, some fans are such perfectionists. They wanted it almost to sound like an album, but it sounds like it did at the stadium in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, I think that was ultimately what Alex wanted. He wanted it a little bit muddy. He wanted it to feel because, you know, I've done I've done DVDs where the bands will even fly guitars in from the album that they used. And like they really make it perfect and really yeah. pristine and they'll master the hell out of it. I think I think he wanted an accurate representation for what it was. You know, this was not your pretty rush show. You want the pretty rush show, go buy R40. This was a moment in the band's career where, you know, the, the planets aligned and everything came together when it should not have. And it, in my opinion, it's probably the, one of the best performances the band ever did. I mean, you know, they went into a place they never were at before. The fans were psychotic. I thought they were on top of their game. And if people really know really what went down that day and how hard it was for that thing to come together, you, I mean, when you watch the show, you would never know what went on that day unless people told the stories, but that show should not have happened. And, uh, you know, it was just, you know, these guys being doing what they do for so long, they were just consummate pros and it was like, they didn't phase them. I mean, I was, I was in a panic mode that day and we had everything going on. I think I mentioned something before, but one of the craziest things is so to work in Brazil as a U.S. production company, we weren't allowed to hire people there. So I was forced to hire a local production company. And the guy we hired, like, was this really sketchy, weird guy. Like, even his business card was him in a black hood, like, with a darked out face. I should have known something just by looking at his business card. But everything, you know, it was one of those, like, three-card money things. No matter what it was, yes, $10. And then I get there. Like, oh, it's, it's 15 I thought I thought you said it's 10 They're Like, no, it's 15 now. No, it's actually 20 I mean, the numbers changed every day. And it was very hard for us. to. It was hard to keep the budget intact. And every time... Like we went out of our way, the, the few pieces of equipment we did ship down to Brazil through rocket cargo, we pre-cleared things through customs. We had all, and then of course it gets to customs. And as we needed it, the, the guy at the airport goes on break and magically it's 10,000 American to get him to come back from lunch, you, you know, to let, let our stuff go. And it was just one of those things. And I'll never forget our, my line producer was this guy named Ted Kenny and he would fight with Alberto every day over you know the budget and what we need and every day like magically things were added and ted argues on once and we're in the office and he goes alberto you know what forget it why don't you just kill me now and alberto goes okay and he, he takes like a razor blade out and slashes ted's arm and it starts gushing blood and we're all in the room like and the funny thing is my bodyguard ad is there and he's like no joke he was like on michael jackson's team and Everybody and then everybody, we're all like, hey, hey and, and all the people are arguing, and like we have the Brazilian production company and our guys, and people are ready to like start. Like it was like it was like a major fight. We get Ted out of there. Ted had to go to the hospital and get stitches. I had to deflate it. This is all before the band got there. This wow. is like the part of the show. We have our we have the the head of the production company in Brazil, like 
cut my <laughs> producer. I mean, <laughs> I was like, welcome to Brazil. It was nuts. And it, it was, it was, you know, one thing after the other. And it was, uh, it, it was completely insane. And then we were told, I mean, even down to like little things, like, you know, I get pulled aside during the show, like uh, my friend, Mr. Catullo, we have police escorts. We need to get your masters out of here because in Brazil, you know, someone would try to maybe kidnap us or take the master tapes and hold them hostage to get a quick ransom. So we had an armored truck backed up to our TV truck with a police escort. Before the band left, the tapes were already on their way out of the venue to get back to the hotel. Wow. I mean, we, we had to get the tapes out of the country. And then the crazy thing is, I don't know if you know, Brazil, flights home are until the evening. So flights coming in are in the morning, but home are until the evening. So another funny thing about this, this show was they booked this show in, on a November, in November because they didn't expect the soccer team to be good that year. And that's playoff season. Well, shockingly, the team ended up being good and they made the playoffs. And so they made the playoffs a week before our show. And then there was a show scheduled for two days after our show. And there was a lot of arguments going into the show whether to cancel the rest show because that grass at Maracana is like, it's, it's like sacred. I mean, it's, we weren't allowed to walk on it. Like I, I was on the side of the field and I went over to meet Pele because Pele gives tours and I wanted to go say hello. And I literally almost got tackled because my foot actually touched the grass. So what they did is for rush day, they covered the field with wood, plywood, but it wasn't a big deal because they would just fluff it back up again. It would be good in a couple of weeks, but there wasn't supposed to be a game. Well, all of a sudden, the home team made the playoffs and there was going to be a playoff game there. So they actually, there were a lot of people that were protesting. They didn't want Rush to play because people are superstitious there. So days before the show, like I started getting threats from people. And then what happened is, you know, people were making threats saying that the team loses the game. It's Rush's fault. Wow. Because we would ruin the field. So I'll never forget, like, after the, after the show, we couldn't wait to get the hell out of Rio. Like, I mean, five o'clock could not come quick enough. I just wanted to get our bag and get the hell out of the country because there were so many people that were upset that they actually went through with the show. Because apparently when they were trying to put the stadium back together, word was spreading that the field was pancaked because it would rain the day before. And then they put the plywood down. The field wasn't going to fluff up. So the newspaper already wrote about it. So people were already talking about it, that if something goes wrong at the game, it's Russia's fault. <laughs> so I'm like, get me out of Rio. <laughs> so, like, so did they win the game? I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, we got out of there. I, I don't. I don't think they did, but there was no drama after it. Uh, you know, so that that whole thing came and went. All the drama, but you know, it was just it would. It was an amazing experience. That was like the first big hit that I was ever involved with. I mean. You know, Godsmack and some of the other things I did before, but the, the Rush thing just went to another level. And, you, and obviously, you guys know about it. Rush fans are a unique breed. I mean, they are the, probably the most loyal fans I've ever encountered of any band I've ever worked with. And they're the reason why I just catapulted. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's also an interesting project because, you know, at the level they were at and sales they were at, th these guys weren't like normal rock stars. My most vivid memory of working with them. I'll never even forget the first time I met Neil. I was so nervous to meet Neil. So nervous. And I, all day long, and I knew I was going to meet him. I was like almost having panic attacks. But then you meet him, and he's, he was this quiet guy. I mean, even down to weird things, like here he is headlining. I met him at an arena first, but headlining an arena, but he's wearing his own laminate at his own show. 
which is rare because bands at that level, the artists usually don't wear laminates because they have security and everybody knows who they are. But Neil just looked like he looked like an accountant. And, you know, and look like a member of the crew. So I think it was, and he was just his demeanor. I just I remember like he wasn't intimidating to me at all. And so it was interesting. So, you know, you grow up watching these guys, but then when you're, when you're with them, they're not remotely intimidating, you know? And I, and I don't know how to really explain it. You know, you, you know, even like Alex out, you know, you meet Alex once, you feel like you've known him your whole life. He's just like your fun, crazy brother, crazy cousin. And, you know, and, uh, he was always the outgoing, go, you know, fun guy, you know, and the thing with Neil was, I think I, I, the reason I got along with him is I didn't talk to him about drumming as much as I wanted to talk to him about playing drums. I never talked to him about drums. He never knew I was a drummer. Uh, I spoke about riding motorcycles, reading, traveling. Those are the things you like to talk about. And, uh, you know, and he's very quiet. And, you know, I think, cause you know, I think when you're at, when you're at his level, people come up to you all the time and just want to talk about drums. And it must be annoying. You know, you know, he's a very quiet guy. And so it was interesting. I mean, there, it was definitely a different experience than what I'm used to. I mean, the only other band that's sort of like that, that's just really down to earth and just, you don't even feel like you're talking to rock stars is Dave Matthews band. You know, Dave's kind of the same thing as, you know, the Rush guys are. They're just very down to earth and they're musicians. They're not rock stars. Yeah, we've heard stories about how the crew is just a, a part of the team they're not just the high the hired hands they're a part of the family yeah that, that, that was an interesting so almost everybody from liam burt to howard i mean again it's like dave matthews where everybody's been around the band since almost day one and it's, a, it's such a well machine and there's just no ego and no drama and you know lots of tours especially when you get into like the beyonce's of the world or whatever when they have these big superstar tours with dancers and this and that you know, it's a revolving door, even with tour managers, I think because they kept so much family around. I mean, Ray surrounded them with all the same people. It was really like a traveling business, but a traveling family, you know, God, it was so, was it 20 years ago now? And when I look back on it, out of all the shows I've ever worked on, it's, it's probably the one that was the least rock star like, and I don't know if that makes sense, but it was just a, a very down to earth, family like you didn't feel like you were in the presence of these rock stars and i look back on it now like god if i could just have another day or another opportunity to relive that i would ask more questions i would have relished in it more but if anything they made you feel so comfortable that you didn't even realize what you're doing you know uh we just felt like you know you just went to a bunch of guys you know and uh, and then you go out in the arena or something you walk around you start to realize oh shit uh this that, that, that was rush <laughs> it's like you know it's like wait a minute and so you know, and that was good because I, I don't know if I would have been able to handle it the way I did because that was pretty early in my career. So I was still relatively new to like working at that level with superstars because it's intimidating. You know, even in my career today, I'm not a normal director and producer because most of the stuff I've done, I've, I've been under my own company. And so as CEO, I'm theoretically the band's boss. So that's a fine line every once in a while because you're sitting there working with them. But if a tough decision needs to be made, you need to be the bad guy. And, uh, you know, at that point in my career, I was still pretty young and, you know, it was intimidating for me uh, because especially when I'm working with people that I grew up idolizing, you know, how do you say no? And then I never forget. I was so nervous when I had to fly up to, and you know, the funny thing is when I had to fly up to Toronto, it was in the middle of that whole SARS thing. So uh, I don't know if you guys remember that SARS was out and I ended up, uh, I ended up getting quarantined at the hospital because I was, I was late. I had to get to the studio and 
I, I got off the plane and I was running to go to customs and they had these body scanners and I had a sweater on and because my body temperature went up because I was running, I scanned high and, and like, it was almost like a hook came out. They pulled me aside <laughs> and they yanked me into this SARS room and I had to stay in there for like an hour until a doctor came in and checked me out and made sure I didn't have SARS. <laughs> it was crazy. But, uh, you know, but even that trip, I was like, I really don't want to do this because I don't want to have to be the bad guy. Uh, you know, how do you tell those guys that they have to stop? But they were they were basically done anyway. Yeah. And still to this day, I think the Russian Rio artworks, probably my favorite artwork of any DVD I've ever done. You signed just killed it. I mean, the artwork on that's amazing. I think I, I think it's my favorite Russian artwork as well. I love it. So let's talk about the show for a moment. Sure. What are your thoughts? As Rush takes the stage and those 40,000 fans start going bananas, had you ever seen anything before or since like that crowd? No. Uh, well, actually, yes. The only other time I've seen a crowd remotely like that was when I did Rage Against the Machine in 2010 in London. But the difference with the, the Rush fans in South America, it was like they were going to church. Um, in fact, at the beginning on Tom Sawyer, as the band goes, like almost in the first verse, you see a guy like look up in the sky and put his arms into the sky. Yeah. A lot of people were doing that. Like they were praying to God. <laughs> it was like, it was like, it was a religious experience for these guys. I mean, everybody did like the energy. It was a different, I mean, it was electrifying. And I, you know, and, and I think even for us, everybody on the crew, because all of our adrenaline was pumped up because we were so damn nervous. We, one, we didn't know if the show was even going to happen. I mean, it got to a point around four or five o'clock that day where we were starting to question whether the show would even happen. And then when we knew the show was going to happen, we didn't know if the, the cameras were going to work. We didn't know if we were going to, we were going to have anything out of it. And so, you know, 20 seconds into Tom Sawyer, when we saw the crowd and we saw everything was working, I mean, I, that was probably the best feeling I've ever had doing one of these things. Like, wow. I mean, we, and it was just ride the wave. And, you know, it was every song. Cause you know, like in America and nothing against American crowds, but you know, the crowds kind of go up and down. Everybody's enthusiastic when a band first walks on stage. And remember this tour, the Vapor Trails tour was, was long. <laughs> yeah. Had, it was a long show. They had to have an intermission and, uh, you know, crowds, you know, during the hits, the crowds would get enthusiastic, but if you really pay attention, that crowd was on fire the entire time. And now when I, when I tell you that most of them were there since four or five in the morning, waiting outside and then standing in those places on the field from like 10 in the morning on wow. it's amazing. I mean, if, if that was in Milwaukee, right. <laughs> you know, the crowd would not have been that, you know, they would not have been like that. They would have been pissed. I mean, they would have been too tired to even show any energy, but you know, a lot of these people waited their entire life for this opportunity and it showed. So yeah, I've never really experienced a crowd like that. It was like a religious experience. They were nuts. Yeah, uh, when we were talking about the uh, concert itself, we were saying how in the States, you know, there'd be the bathroom break song. There'd be one song where everyone would just be like, eh, I got to go to the bathroom or whatever. I don't think anybody went to the bathroom. <laughs> Nobody was leaving that show. Well, they, they went to the bathroom. They just went to the bathroom <laughs> on the field. Uh, but, but believe it or not, you know, the, there, there's a moat around the field at Maracana Stadium, or it was at the time. So... Speaking of bathrooms there, my production office was in a horrible part of the of the stadium where we had a leak from a bathroom above us. So we had raw sewage oh. leaking into our production office the entire time we were there. We were in the venue a couple of days earlier. So we were there for, I think, three or four days. And then um, the moat around the field to deter fans from jumping from the, the seats onto the field, 
they had a moat and the bathrooms would drain into that moat. So that was all piss and shit in the moat. And the funny thing was, of course, you know, Jeff Rabbits, who I brought him to do the, um, the TV light design to work with Howard. We came up with this idea to have these things called synchro lights, these big kind of sky lights. And we shipped them in and uh, we put those in the moat. So we were putting these big synchro lights in the urine all around the venue. And I, you know, I just remember that, like, I, I actually, to this day, I vividly remember the smell of those moats, uh, you know, and this is, but, but that would be the deterrent to stop people from jumping, trying to climb through the moats to get on the field. Wow. That's how crazy they are about soccer in South America. I mean, it's a whole nother level. Yeah. So what were some of the highlights of the show itself for you that night, Daniel? I'm always a limelight guy. I mean, obviously, you know, that was my first time ever working a show where I saw a crowd jumping. You know, when Limelight kicked in, the whole crowd just started jumping up and down. And we could actually feel it backstage. The ground was shaking. That, you know, and that just completely stands out more than anything. Uh, just because, you know, obviously the, the first 20 seconds, because my heart rate was able to go down, we knew we had a show. But Limelight was just, for me, hands down, uh, the highlight of the night and even today whenever people want to see a clip of russian rio I'll, I'll tell them to watch limelight just because the crowd i mean i've never seen a rush crowd like that other than what happened in rio uh, i mean they were just it was crazy you know and you know, every you know yyz i mean some of the you know there, there's moments in the show but for me seeing the crowd react like that you know it's different because you know in in general rush fans are a little more subdued or you get the macho guy that will, you know, put their fist in the air and yell, ah, you know, but we don't see unit in unison, like, you know, people arm in arm and just jumping up and down. I mean, you know, and so, and that was something unexpected. Uh, I didn't expect to see that. And so I'll never forget that moment because when, when the show started, people were putting their arms up in the air, but we didn't see the jumping. We saw the jumping, you know, there's probably 35,000 people on the field. Uh, just going up and down, all bopping with the music. I mean, that was pretty crazy. And I'm sure the crowd reaction throughout the show helped everyone on the crew and everything just feel so much better about the whole lead up to it, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if anything, I think it made me personally, it made me more nervous during the day because, uh, you know, I saw, you could tell right off the bat when they let the, when they let the crowd in. That's the other thing. Usually... I'm most known for my rock stuff. Now, since then, I've worked with a lot of pop artists, but up until then, it was mainly rock. And in general, at rock shows, when they open doors, people don't do a mad sprint to the stage. When they open doors, man. I thought people were going to get killed. I, I actually was down on the field. I went to front of house when they opened it up. And then I started seeing it was a stampede coming my way. I ran to get behind the barricades. I was like, holy shit, they started coming in like I've never seen. And that was new for me. And so that added more pressure because when you saw how enthusiastic this crowd was, I don't think anybody wanted to let them down. I mean, literally, if, if I had to take a bet that day on lunchtime, I mean, I would say around noon that day, there was probably a 75% chance that the show might not have happened. And then maybe around two went to 50%. But I would say even as, as of late as four or five o'clock, we were still around the 75% chance that the TV shoot would not have happened. Hmm. We had everything going against us. I mean, I've never had to do a shoot in my life where there's people backstage soldering things like that. Like, what? That, that's completely crazy. And um, what we do is very technical. 
we have to do sound checks and because we take a feed from the board with all the split it goes into our audio room the audio then feeds into our tv truck we usually have to do camera blocking i mean you know it's funny because i look at russian rio differently now than i do other projects you know i actually appreciate the the flaws in it because knowing what went into it and how we did it and it's just so um i like the fact that we didn't you know we could have cooked it we could have done things in post you know to make it look prettier and stuff but it was kind of the rawness of it you know i like the idea if you look at the rush body of work now of all their dvds they had you know alan yeti's brother continued to do dvds and the other ones are much more polished and pristine and i think we have the raw gritty one the one with the energy it's a real document of the show itself i think if we made it too pretty it would not have accurately portrayed what it was like to be in Rio that day. Yeah. I mean, because there was nothing, nothing perfect or pretty about anything we did that day. I mean, everything was just a fiasco. It was just, you know, uh, I mean, we, even the days before we had crew members get robbed in Copacabana beach. <laughs> it was just one thing after the other with this. Uh, it was just, it was not an easy shoot. That was my first time ever doing a film shoot outside of America. And so what a way to start, you know, working internationally. That was, you know, I, I, you know, that was, I got a doctorate degree in shooting internationally very quick. Yeah. Real, real trial by fire. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's very fulfilling and, uh, and the rush fans, it's, it's crazy. You know, we're 20 years later and every once in a while I'll get an email from a rush fan asking me a question. They'll reach out to me on my personal website or on my Facebook page or Instagram. I've never seen such loyal fans in my life. They love knowing every little thing. And it's just, uh, looking back on it hands down a, a highlight of my career it's very that's a hard one to ever one up uh, i don't know if i'd want to relive that again because I, I couldn't do it now at 50 i'd probably have a heart attack uh there was just so many crazy things that went on through that entire thing that show should never have happened daniel what would be different had you gone to rio later in your career as opposed to 2003. torn's gotten easier over the years as technology has moved on rigs are smaller now uh it's lower simplistic but it, obviously going back a second time would have been a lot easier because i know what to expect i know firsthand because we lived in that world everybody looks back on that experience and it's one of the highlights of the band's career yeah i was really sad you know um we won the juno so i was fortunate to go up there and myself andrew mcnaughton and peggy accepted it we honestly didn't think we were going to win it we actually thought avril Levine was going to win so it was a big surprise. And then um, the thing that made me sad was that, you know, Neil got nominated for a Grammy for the drum solo. And this is the first time ever that he was ever really properly honored. And I could not believe that he did not win the Grammy. And, you know, and, and for Neil went to the show. So you, you guys knew Neil, Neil doesn't go anywhere. And so the fact he actually went to the Grammys and he lost the Brian Wilson smile, it was like, and the funny thing was, we knew the politics behind that, and I have no problem even speaking about it publicly. You think it was a coincidence that Brian Wilson was the person of the year at Music Cares that year? And, uh, you know, I just, the politics behind it. Like, how could you not honor Neil Peart after all those years? And he's so known for that. I was, I was blown away. I, like, I lost faith in the Grammys after that. I couldn't believe they didn't give Neil the Grammy. You know, and it's like, how could someone go that long in his career and not win a Grammy? And, you know, now what I know that would have meant so much to him and uh, he should have gotten it, uh, you know, not me, even if you're not a rush fan, but if you, you know, if you ask people, I would say 
more than half the people that ever mentioned Rush would know Neil's drum solo before anything. Absolutely. It was it's really sad that, you know, there was finally an opportunity to properly, you know, honor him for that and they didn't give it to him. And so it would have been nice to bring that Grammy home for him. But, you know, we won the Juno, which was really cool. And I didn't even really know how big the Junos were, believe it or not, uh, when I went up there. It was at the arena in Edmonton. And I honestly, I had no idea how big it was and like this crazy red carpets. And I mean, believe it or not, the Junos in Canada are a bigger deal than the Grammys are here. Like here in America, they don't really care. Like, but in Canada, I mean, that night, my family didn't come. I went up alone. But like, you know, I, I'll never forget, like, I think we won the only, uh, Universal was our distributor up in Canada. And Randy Lennox was the CEO of Universal at the time. And he had a, a, a Grammy after party or a Grammy, a Juno after party. I think we were the only Juno they won that year in the Universal umbrella. So I was like, I'd never forget, like showing up at the, at the party and Randy Lennox is pulling me in and sitting me down and he gave me a crazy expensive cigar. And. I remember calling my wife, like, you have no idea how big it is up here. <laughs> the place is crazy. And, uh, you know, it was such a great moment. But it was, it was cool because it meant a lot for the band. And, you know, especially, remember, no one really knew if the band was going to have a career when they came back. You know, they, they went away for a while. And they came back. And the whole Vapor Trails you know, cycle of their career, when they started that, there was a question mark of whether fans would still come out. And so I think it was really cool of them to be honored that way, where they got all this critical acclaim. You know, I, I look back on it, you know, never worked with them again after that. But, you know, we definitely set the tone like they discovered a whole new business that they didn't know existed for them. And, you know, Rush became the kings of the hill in music. Every DVD they put out after Rush and Rio, everyone debuted at number one. Everyone got certified platinum. You know, we realized that Rush fans like music DVDs. You know, and, uh, you know, no one knew that before. And so, you know, they, we had a whole series of them. And I like it because they're all drastically different, you know, because people ask me all the time, you can go back in time when you have shot in an HD. I always say yes to the HD thing because maybe the archival value would be better. But I kind of like that we have the raw gritty one, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it fits with everything there. I mean, the, the, the stadium was kind of a hellhole. I mean, it wasn't well kept. I mean, you know, you hear these stories about Maracana as the biggest stadium in the world and like the sacred ground where Pele played. And then you show up there and there's there's a moat with piss and, it, you know, it's falling <laughs> apart. And you're like, oh, my God. So everything was raw and gritty on this thing. The entire, you know, the entire tour, every show they did, all these venues, it, just the feel of it. So there's a genuineness to this one like the feel of it that I don't think the other DVDs have. And so if I had the opportunity to work with them again, well, that, that's a stupid thing. I probably would have said yes, but if I, <laughs> but I don't know if I ever would have won up Russian Rio, uh, just the way it came together. And it really is an accurate portrayal of what it was like to be in Rio that night. I mean, it was very gritty. Neil Peart said in the liner notes of the DVD that the show that night had 40,000 stars. And uh, that's all thanks to you, Daniel. Thanks for making this amazing film. Thanks for sharing your stories with us today. Really was great. Oh, God, I appreciate it. I, I, I appreciate you guys even keeping their legacy alive, keeping it going. I mean, they are definitely one of the greatest bands ever. And I'm just glad I'm part of their story that I had something to do with documenting a, a, a particular point in their career. And like I said, if, you know, if someone gave me a choice to document any point in their career, I, I, I actually, 
I would still choose the same point of the career. I mean, that was a turning point for them. And uh, yeah, it was an honor. And, uh, you know, obviously a sad ending. Uh, we would all wish Neil was still here. Uh, and we wish the band would still play. But, you know, thankfully, there's Russian Rio and there's R40. And I mean, there's Snakes and Arrows. There's tons of amazing films out there that documented their career that will, you know, we have stuff to show our kids. And so, you know, I'm just glad I was part of that story with them. I mean, it was really uh, an amazing experience, that entire thing. Thanks so much for joining us today, Daniel. We really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. So, Jaron, we decided to have Daniel on. I thought the story would be crazy, but I didn't think it would be that crazy. No, I wasn't expecting a stabbing, a slash, <laughs> a slashing. <laughs> That's incredible. It is incredible. What a crazy night it must have been. That's something he will never, ever, ever forget as long as he lives. No. And he was such a great storyteller as well. Oh, amazing. Amazing storyteller. And I wasn't sure when we booked Daniel, if he was even a Rush fan, because, you know, this is just his job, you know, maybe he, maybe he's not a Rush fan, but he's a huge Rush fan. Huge Rush fan. Enormous. He was getting emotional there at the end. Yeah, I know. He's a humongous Rush fan. It's crazy. And the third thing is I'm very glad he agreed with us about the Grammy thing. Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Come on. <laughs> Just the name alone. I was going to get into that with him, but you know, we, we've covered that already. Right. We have. So Jared, one more thing before we go, we made a little bitty mistake on last week's episode. A little bitty mistake. Just a tiny mistake. Little bitty mistake. We said Rush never went back to Brazil, but they did. They did go back. Yes. On the time machine tour. Yep. October 8th, 2010, they played Sao Paulo and October 10th, 2010, they played Rio de Janeiro. So I guess the enthusiasm of the fans did bring them back. That's right. Um, you know, uh, what are we going to do? I got a couple of emails about it. I'm sure you got a couple of Twitters about it. Is that tweets? Is that what they call those things? I did not get one tweet about it. Oh, really? Maybe most people were like us and didn't think they went back. Yeah. I mean, some people, especially I believe, uh, people from Brazil emailed me and said, Hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they did come back to Brazil. I was at that show. I know I was there. That's right. All right. Well, we apologize for the error. You can find us on Twitter. We are at rush Fancast. Instagram. You could find us at the rush cast email, Jerry, let him know what you thought of our conversation with Daniel Catullo at the rush at gmail.com. Follow or subscribe via your favorite podcast app. Lex did the bass intro and outro. And Jer, he has got the quote to wrap things up. That's right. We've got nothing to fear but fear itself. Not pain or failure. Not fatal tragedy. Not the faulty units in this mad machinery. Not the broken contacts in emotional chemistry. That's it? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to keep going. I think it sums up the, the night that was Russian Rio pretty well. And we all know what the weapon was now. <laughs> That's right. A razor blade of some kind. <laughs> Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later. Take it easy.